this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm Brian Hamilton. I'll be your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Anna Zeta, Assistant Professor of Professional Practice in the Department of History at Oklahoma State University. She's the author of the just-released book, Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. It's available from the University of California Press. Anna Zeta, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Anna, we like to start these things with our guests sharing a bit about their path into their chosen professions. And so could you give us a, a quick, you know, cradle to grad school snapshot of your life? Sure. Um, yeah, well, mine is certainly a pretty circuitous path into history in that I um, started college as a biology major and then became an environmental studies double major. And that's what I graduated with. I first thought I'd go into some science path and worked in a laboratory doing plant genetics, um, largely under family influence, I think. But I took two courses in my junior year of college. One was a history of life sciences class for my biology major. Um, Gar Allen was uh, a rare historian of science who was actually hired by the biology department at Washington University in St. Louis, where I did my undergraduate. And so all um, biology majors had to take some history of science, which was unusual, but great for my life. And um, and then for my environmental studies major, I did an environmental history class with Canaveri Valentius. And um, these were my two favorite classes I'd taken in college. And I had never really thought about these fields before. And I asked the professors what their path into that field was. And they both said they'd done PhDs in history of science at Harvard. And I had never heard that history of science was a discipline, um, but I started getting interested in that. And they both advised me through the process of applying for PhD programs in history of science. Um, and the lure of Greg Mittman and Bill Cronin at the University of Wisconsin both of whom worked on environmental history um, and history of science and health topics. Um, though I didn't really know what topics I wanted to study, I knew that those um, historical perspectives on the fields that I had studied in more applied ways felt like the right path in. Um, but as a result, I'd really only taken two history classes as an undergraduate, <laughs> um, almost none. And as a result, I wouldn't have gotten into, I don't think, history PhD programs. So it was really wonderful that the history of science program um, at Wisconsin and elsewhere I applied really appreciated that I had this more applied background that I could and trusted that I could pick up the historical skills once I started the PhD program. Yeah. So, um, yes. So Wisconsin. So this book, uh, this book, as you're saying, began as, as your dissertation at Wisconsin. Um, and, and now many, many graduate students are very familiar with the challenge of trying to make their research topics, which might be thought of as uh, obscure or perhaps dull by non-specialists, um, sound exciting and important. And uh, handing might fall into that category. Um, and, and, but it's clear from your book's really engaging introduction that you had a lot of experience convincing yeah. people to care about canning. Yeah. 
So can I ask you to make that case one more time? Um, you know, why, why did you decide to dedicate a chunk of your life to investigate the history of canning? Yeah, it's true. I hope it doesn't come across too defensively. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the things that actually drew me to it was that it was one of these sort of mundane and overlooked objects in our lives that we interact with very regularly without really thinking about them critically ever. Um, and I, I'm always drawn to the kind of less seen parts of life. But canned food in particular felt interesting to me because I knew that I was interested in studying food. I had always really liked thinking with food because it felt like it let me look at so many topics I was interested in and technology and gender and consumption and the environment and business and all of these different things. I could sort of see them, how they all come together through the lens of food. Um, and then it was a question of where within the study of food might, might I actually target a narrow, you know, a more narrow topic. And um, I got really interested in the question of sort of seasonality and of the limitations before the modern era of, um, season and um, cyclic, you know, natural cycles that that limited what people could eat, what people could do in and outside, and how much we had lost connection to that um, those seasonal cycles in the modern times with air conditioning and refrigeration and trucking and global food systems. And so, um, as I started to look into the kind of history of food preservation as one way that people overcame some of these seasonal cycles, it became clear that where food preservation and kind of the growth of a modern food system met was in the history of the can because the canning industry was the first, um, the first sort of organized national industry that lay the groundwork for, for our modern food system for so many of the kind of strategies of modern food um, were pioneered by the canners. And that's one of the arguments of the book. And, and one of the things that made me realize that if I also wanted to understand the modern food system, which I have always been interested in more from a, present contemporary active pers activist perspective that finding its roots would be one way into that space. Yeah, thanks. Well, let's get into that history a bit. Um, there's a popular narrative, I think, that canning was was first a folksy domestic practice that was the later co-opted by industry. And I think that's probably what I would have thought um, if you'd asked me before I opened this book. Um, but your book really blows that apart. Um, so what were the true origins of, of canning? Yeah, well, certainly there's a really interesting story still to be told about the history of home canning and I don't get into that book into that in the book as much and I think some readers are disappointed because everyone says, "Oh, my grandmother always canned and I want to read the book or tell her about it." Um because I think a lot of people are very familiar with that, you know, very common practice for a lot of the early 20th century of of home canning, but um in fact the I mean the methods that home canning relied on did emerge out of the modern of the canning industry in a more commercialized space. Um, although certainly the practice of just creating jellies and jams and pickles, things that were preserved foods but not technically canned, meaning they weren't you know vacuum sealed through the process of heating, um, but were you know instead the salts or the acids or the sugars that were in those foods created preservation. I mean, that has a much longer history and that's not quite what I'm talking about. But as far as canning goes, which, you know, in the uh, industrial side of things is in a metal can and the home side of things, usually in a glass jar that you would boil in a, you know, um, open boiler or a pressure canner. Um, the, all of those innovations first emerged with Nicolas Appert, who is known as the father of the canning industry. He was a French uh, confectioner in the late, um, 
in late 1700s who responded to a call from Napoleon um, to create some better way of preserving food for the sol- for the soldiers that Napoleon was overseeing in his army. And um, there was a 12,000 franc prize that was offered for anyone who could come up with the best method. And a pair came up with this method that at the time was called appertizing after his name, um, which was sealing um, different containers. He often used ceramic crocks or even glass, um, sealing these containers in an airtight fashion and then boiling them such that the heat created this kind of vacuum seal that would allow um, for the food to not spoil for a longer period of time. And um, this method won the prize. He, he got the Napoleon's prize. And then, you know, some investors in France and Britain, and then later in the United States, sort of took this method and started um, commercializing it and started calling it canning from the sort of canisters that they were using. Um, And it came to the U.S. by the 1820s or 30s, but um, as I argue, sort of didn't grow into a larger national scale industry until after the Civil War. And and the first really important site of of canning in the United States at industrial level is is in Baltimore. And, And why was that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just as a pair was often called the father of the canning industry, Baltimore was often called the mother of the canning industry, which I always think is a funny, a funny marriage. Um, But yeah, Baltimore was for a combination of environmental and probably just happenstance reasons in the sense that some of the early canners um, set up shop in Baltimore and found that both the um, being situated on the water, oyster harvesting and oyster canning was one of the sort of first major products that were canned, um, taking these, you know, highly perishable and very geographic specific um, products and putting them into cans that could be shipped broader. And then also having the kind of agricultural lands around Baltimore in the kind of mild, relatively mild climate, um, that they were able to grow vegetables that could, they could also try to can. And as a result, this, um, you know, some of the early canners who really started to see it as the potential industry with a larger market, more national market started to grow out of Baltimore. Oh, that's great. And then I also was struck that, that a pair essentially by heating this food was preserving it not just the vacuum ceiling, but also with killing, killing the bacteria that he didn't know was in there. Right. And so essentially it was, was sort of pasture before pasture in that way. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, he had no idea of there's no germ theory. There's no awareness of what it is about the heat and the vacuum that's removing, you know, any spoiling properties. But yeah, and Pasteur actually refers later to um, to a pair when he talks about the development of germ theory. And he says, you know, I was presenting a new application of a pair's method. So he clearly saw himself following the footsteps of, you know, this more applied method um, that he then was able to provide the scientific understanding to explain. <laughs> well, we're only a few pages in and I'm already totally yeah. convinced the canning is extremely important in the history of this. Yeah, good. That's the goal. <laughs> One of the themes that runs through Booker, you depend, spend, a lot, spend, spend a lot of time thinking about government regulation. Um, and here in this early in this early era, in the 19th century, it's, some might be surprised to learn that it was the canning industry itself that was really pushing the federal government to, to, to regulate. Um, why was that? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I say that's one of the things that, you know, when we think about kind of the modern food industry or certainly modern business, there's a real tension between regulation um, and an industry and usually the desire to deregulate. But in the early period, um, canners really saw, you know, the federal government at a time when it was still very small as a kind of um, source of 
confidence in the sense that if consumers saw that these cans were approved by or could hold muster against some kind of federal standards, that they would be able to overcome any skepticism or fear that they might have of the products and say, well, if the government approves of it, then I suppose that I can try it too. And the canners actively courted the um, the federal government to create that kind of external stamp of approval. Um, and yeah, well before the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, they had petitioned Congress, I think in the 1880s, for a similar kind of federal food act. Um, and then were very instrumental in pushing for the actual passage in 1906 as well. And on the heels of that, um, of the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act created the National Canners Association just a few months later um, in, in, 19, in early 1907 um, and really saw themselves being born as a national industry because of the and on the heels of the, the Food and Drug Act. So very, very much tied to the, the call for regulation. Yeah. And, and they're in the early days of, of the uh, NCA, they're the National Canners Association. Um, you, I mean, well, you also trace the, the evolution of publicity and marketing um, throughout throughout the canning industry. And and there's this, <laughs> there's this, you know, this moment where you make sure your readers are paying attention where the National Canners Industry in the early 20th century actually solves a murder. <laughs> How did it's that come true. That? Not what you... Not what you think that they would do. But yeah, they um, created a bunch of different bureaus as part of the NCA. And one of them was sort of their Bureau of Publicity that was both trying to publicize positive impressions of canned food, but even more importantly, to kind of debunk negative you know, impressions of canned food. So they would... There were, at the time, newspapers were very interested in publicizing, you know, poisoning from what were called tomains at the time, um, which were these kind of general category of things in food that made you sick. Um, and a lot of when people would get sick, they would attribute it to canned food. And um, they would actually send out detectives, the Bureau of Publicity, um, to track down the families who of the person who had gotten sick and try to figure out, okay, could it have been canned food? And when they decided it couldn't, they would debunk it and publish, you know, a counter um, article. And in one case, the, the detective found that in fact, the person had died not because of food poisoning, but as a result of a murder. And um, they, I don't know if they exactly found out who had done it or how, but they helped to, to show the real cause of death. <laughs> Goodness, amazing. Yeah. Because this is the scale also of, yeah. of the country at the time. But um, you, uh, you move right. on in the book to discuss the relationship between the canning industry and, and farmers in the early 20th century. It was one of the major contributions of your book. And, and you find that canners were not merely riding the boom in agricultural production in this period, but they were actually shaping what agriculture looked like and, and from, from distribution right down to the seed themselves. Um, so, uh, and, and you spend a lot of time in this chapter in Wisconsin, um, moving into the middle of the country. Um, what were the factors that made Wisconsin such an instructive example of the processes at work here? Yeah. So the, the second chapter, yeah, is all about um, canning agriculture, basically this relationship between agricultural scientists, farmers, breeders, and the canning industry to build um, a better a better crop for the can, something that was well suited to the canning environment. And um, yeah, I decided to focus on Wisconsin in particular because I was interested in a couple of things. One was Wisconsin was the leader, leading grower of peas at the time and canned peas throughout the early 20th century were one of the top three canned vegetables, usually along with tomatoes and corn. Um, and each state had kind of specialized a little bit. So tomatoes were grown um, in, in New Jersey 
in Maryland and later in Indiana, corn often in Illinois, and then Wisconsin became this leading canner of peas um, for a variety of reasons that had both to do with the rise of the dairy industry and with the climate in Wisconsin. Um, And so you have both this uh, leading production of an important canned crop. And then you also have the existence of the University of Wisconsin's College of Agriculture as this leading land-grant institution that had emerged with a really robust experiment, agricultural experiment station and extension work that they were really trying to see the needs of the state, both you know, just consumers in the state, farmers in the state, but also canners in the state and um, bringing that into the kind of the university, the college, agricultural college setting and seeing how, you know, academia could be in service of the state. So in this case, um, and there was also leading early um, work in agricultural genetics um, in Wisconsin that was earlier than many other states were were looking at that kind of uh, advanced breeding work. And so that confluence of factors meant I could really study in depth what was happening at the intersection of the College of Agriculture with state canners and the farmers that they were working with and how instrumental, as you said, the um, canners were in sort of shaping the research agenda of the college and and vice versa, how much the college relied on the practical um, field work of the canners in in doing their, their work as well. Yeah. Could you give us a couple examples of what canners wanted from their peas and how they went about getting it from the farmers? Yeah. So... Um, several things. I mean, there were some basic, you know, concerns about the things that all agricultural uh, producers have to struggle with. So there were concerns about pesticides and fungal um, blight and um, yield and breeding a kind of pea that was um, more more open to mechanical harvesting. Um, this was definitely a period of explosion of sort of technologies and machinery that were used within the canning industry to help systematize and mechanize the process of picking peas, shaking the peas off the vines, washing the peas, passing them through different grading mechanisms to, you know, to, or to separate based on size um, and then to get them into the cans themselves before the cans were boiled. And so all of this required different things from the pea plant itself. So they were interested in working with breeders to breed varieties of peas that would both grow on straighter vines and less zigzag stems, um, as well as um, peas that were hardier and could hold up to the very, you know, high levels of processing that canning requires. You know, if you boil peas are this very delicate, you know, spring crop. If you boil them too long, they turn into mush and they're not that good. And so how do they um, create a better pea that that holds up better in that space of the can? And that was very much a project that they saw as, um, you know, needing the partnership of the farmers and the agricultural breeders and scientists. Yeah, I, if you can, <laughs> excuse me, the indulgence, I, I think about canned peas and it's it's the food I think about that has the most distinct taste as a canned food. As a, so I always, when I was reading this chapter about how they're trying to perfect it and get it just just however, however they want it, I kept thinking like, and the final product was canned peas that we know. And so do you, did you find yourself kind of, expo- kind of imagining the sensory kind of worlds or, like, or what the cast offs tasted like, for instance? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, the book is about food, but it's, it's, it's hard to get at that, you know, actual sensation of taste in this, in this space. But, um, you know, we have some reports of some people who loved it and some people who did not like it. And I think even still today, some of the research I think on processed foods suggests that, you know, when people really love canned peas, it's not because 
it's because they don't have a clear sense of what a fresh pea tastes like or a preference for it, that it creates a whole other set of taste associations that they enjoy for its own thing. Same thing, I think, with canned peaches. Like there's been, you know, some work on how some people really love canned peaches with cottage cheese or these particular dishes that they would not put a fresh peach into because it creates a new standard for taste. And um, yeah, but certainly I, I can't imagine that these foods were most appealing because of taste. You know, I, I think that their most, their strongest appeal was both that, that, that they could be eaten out of season, that they were convenient, that they could be stored, that um, they broadened a palate that was otherwise sort of limited. Oh yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I want to ask you about, about consumers, quote unquote consumers who are essentially are almost like a character in your book. Um, and sometimes it means specific people that we hear from occasionally. Um, sometimes it means advocacy groups that are identifying themselves as consumers. Um, and then it's also just, it's just also this kind of, um, this group in the minds and the desires of, of the, and the kind of fixation of canners themselves of the industry. Um, and, and then sometimes you mean it just to mean the mass of people who are buying this food. And so, um, you know, and we hear the canners talking about, you know, that consumers cared about the color of their peas or the color of the clarity of the water that the peas are packed in. Um, could you say a little bit, so, so both you and the canners are both trying to get at consumers, um, in different ways. And so can you say a little bit about the ways that, that, that the both of you, both of you um, conceived of them and kind of got at their interests? Yeah, right. Yeah. And this was a ch- challenge throughout the book, because I always thought I wanted to write a book that was very focused on people's stories and uh, looking, I, I like reading books that are very particular to people's human experiences. And that's not really what this book is, because um, it was, it was very much consumers are an important character in the, in the book, but I actually talk, I actually think that who's most important is sort of the imagined consumer from the perspective of the canners. Um, because I rely a lot on canning industry sources and I'm, I am writing in some ways a, you know, a business history of this, of this um, industry. One of the things I was really interested in was how did the canners imagine their consumers? Who were these, you know, faceless flocks of large, usually women who they were trying to improve their products for? Cause that's a big argument of the book is that so much of their work was driven by this idea of a, an ideal consumer who they wanted to convince that canned food was trustworthy. And so even the cover of my book, which pictures these kind of disembodied hands, these white a white woman's hands with red fingernails, um, kind of trying to evoke this idea that this person who picks up a can is very important to the story, but the person isn't really a named faced person, although maybe her class and race and gender are... Um, are pretty defined in the eyes of the canners, but that it was, you know, at least until the thirties when, um, as some commentators said, the consumer became more get atable, meaning uh, there were some larger national consumer movements that began to, you know, create consumer organizations that could speak on behalf of consumers to some extent, um, that these, you know, um, canners were really, shooting into the dark a bit with what they thought these people were. I mean, they could see some, market sales statistics. They could see what kinds of things were selling and what weren't, but there wasn't a lot of systematic approach to understanding these consumers. It was a lot of guesswork. Um, and in some ways that's true as, of me as a historian too, is that I had to piece together um, sort of disparate evidence of, of you know the public taste around canned food to try to make arguments about how they were responding to canners, um, you know, changes in practice. So, um, yeah, the consumer remains pretty pretty hidden in the book, but also very central in this funny uh, juxtaposed way. And you, and you note in several places across the 20th century that that the industry is really 
honed in on um, on the domestic kind of middle class woman um, and not uh, staying home and not not working and and you kind of note in several places that that's that's likely a very you know a, a fraction of their market really uh, even of their, of their work market among American women. Yeah, and that's you know I think it's not un, untrue of you know a lot of industries today, even as they're trying to do market segmentation and focus groups and trying to understand you know more nuanced vision of their consumers. I think sometimes unless they're targeting specific demographic groups, there's still a kind of default. I think of sort of the middle class white woman as the kind of I, the person who we assume is making shopping choices, even when you know statistics show otherwise. But I think. Um, there's there's still kind of a dominant sense of who advertising is directed at and the kind of default idea of the consumer. Well, in chapter three, you explore the fallout from, uh, I think maybe 10 deaths from botulism across the country that were traced to cans of, of California olives in 1919 and 1920. Um, this was a very scary moment for the industry, as you tell it. Um, and, and in other moments of public backlash that you describe um, against canning, the problem is with kind of a specific food or, or, or something happens, it's dramatic, but the sales don't really show a dip at all, but they, they do with olives. And so, um, and a big reason for that threat is, as you described it, is, is the media response. Um, and throughout the book, throughout the book, you seem on the side of more scrutiny of the industry, more transparency, more kind of getting, getting, um, getting into there and seeing what's going on. But um, you're, you're critical of the, what you found in newspapers and magazines regarding this particular incident with botulism. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. I mean, I hope I come across both critical of them, but also in some ways, I think the canner's response, which was to basically try to hush it up and to try to keep these cases out of the media. You know, I hope I'm critical of them as well in the sense that I mean, it was clearly a problem that needed consumer attention. And in a time when a lot of these you know, publications were um, reliant on advertising money that was coming from some of these large food um, producers, you know, it was it was hard sometimes for consumers to get accurate information about the safety of their food products. So on the one hand, of course, I think an informed consumer is critical. But um, yes, I did find that uh, when when newspaper writers, journalists were writing about botulism, they tended to really play it up. There was a lot of sensationalization going on that seemed, uh, you know, out of proportion with the real threat. Um, and I think it's, you know, partly because food is always is, is always something that feels very intimate, sort of safe part of this familial space. And um, so a lot of these articles would start with these very kind of pretty setting the scene where, you know, the curtains, there's curtains are waving in the wind and the sun is twinkling on the fresh bowls of, you know, green beans poured from the can and, you know, setting up this scene of like maximum contrast between how lovely these dining settings were. And then moments later, you know, the person is falling on the floor, gasping for breath, you know, stricken by the botulism from those green beans that had earlier seemed so lovely. And so, I get why they sort of played it up to dramatic effect because the contrast between how food is supposed to nurture and satiate and on the other hand that it would kill you, um, you know, can be played up in a way that would make readers want to stay with you. But I think as a result, it, um, you know, yes, as I said, sensationalized the real reality of how far, far, far flung and how widespread the problem actually was. So if there's criticism of the media representation, it's certainly from the kind of the way it was presented. Um, 
But as I said, the canners very much like explicitly tried to not use the word botulism in any of their proceedings, even when they were meeting to discuss how to address the problem, because they just didn't want anyone to even be talking about it. And I, you know, I think that's obviously also not a, an ideal response. <laughs> and it worked, right? Essentially, the, the industry response seems to have worked. Um, I mean, canning went on. I wonder, is, is, am I being sensational to say that if it hadn't, if they had gone a different direction, that we maybe this might have been a moment where it would still be possible for American consumers to have walked away from cans for good, you think? All right, counterfactual, I apologize, but. Yeah, no. Um, I I don't think no. I don't think they would have walked away from canned food altogether for a couple of reasons. One is so to back up what they did in response, in addition to kind of shushing up the story, was that they launched a pretty wide scale scientific research project into um, the kind of processing methods that were that were in use across different kinds of foods and set standards across different products for how long, what temperatures um, cans should be cooked. And in so doing, they tried to standardize and then created inspection services, state funded inspect. I mean, state-run but cannery-funded inspection services, at least in California, to oversee that canners were really holding to those standards. So they very much responded with a very um, you know, positive and forward-thinking and self-regulating way of saying, okay, this is a real problem. How do we fix it? So even if on the face of it, they were rejecting this, the problem, they were reacting like it was a big problem. And those standards that were set continued to shape the industry even into the present, I believe. So um, on the one hand, you're right to suggest that this was an incredibly important moment. And I think had they not responded that way, I don't think canning would have gone away, but I think it might not have grown and exploded in the way it did in the next decade in the 1930s when canning production really grew. Um, also, because one of the things I talk about is the way that this case really showed the by now regional difference and variation in the canning industry. So even though there was a National Canners Association that was spoke for the canners across the country, um, that tended to be more East Coast and Midwest focused. And then the canning uh, in industry in California, which by now had grown to be very large and would continue to grow, um, was somewhat separate, you know, obviously geographically, but also in terms of the problems that they faced. And so because these olives were in California and the resulting uh, research was in California at, at Stanford and UC Berkeley, um, I think that California canners wanted to invest in the in the research, but canners um, on the East Coast were less interested in this, and they felt less threatened by the problem. So it was both a national but also more a regional problem. So I think that even if this hadn't been addressed in quite the same way, you know, canning in other parts of the country may have continued without quite as much of a, of a blowback. Well, your next chapter, um, which covers canners and the New Deal, is called Grade A Tomatoes. And it's sort of a winking title because there is no such thing as a grade A tomato. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> right. <laughs> not today anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the third chapter is looking at this very kind of, um, you know, I don't know how to say it, like very detailed and very policy driven kind of decision that might not seem that important, but I try to show why it mattered. So in the 1930s, um, in response to the Great Depression, one of the New Deal administration um, groups, the National Recovery Administration, tried to set um, grading standards for different canned products. And one of the reasons that they thought that this would help with sort of a broader economic um, issue was that if consumers would be more informed, if consumers could go into the store and know that if they were paying 
five cents more for something that it was actually better quality and that lower grade um, tomatoes or any other cr- um, product uh, would cost less as a result. And so it would empower consumers. It would allow for more differentiation in the market. So consumers could sort of pick the grade based on the use of the food inside. So if they were just going to boil it down into a stew, maybe grade C tomatoes would be fine. Those would be ones that were fully edible and, and good, but maybe didn't have the right the same shape or color or something like that. And so um, the NR the National Recovery Administration's Consumer Council tried to impose onto the canning industry, as well as a bunch of other consumer industries, this desire for, for grading. And um, the canners resisted very strongly, and they eventually, you know, uh, resisted long enough until the NRA was uh, deemed unconstitutional and. Um, the whole kind of project mostly fell apart, although discussions of grading did continue. But um, but I say that this is an important moment when the canners sort of won out over government regulation, both because they this is kind of the first instance of strong pushback against a proposed government regulation. In contrast, as I said, to the earlier engagement in the Pure Food and Drug Act and the request for inspection after the botulism cases, this was canners asserting that Number one, they had gotten big enough and strong enough as an industry that they didn't necessarily need that government stamp of approval as much, and that they now felt more confident in sort of taking control of how they communicated to consumers. And they didn't want the government's grade to be the mediator or to be the only thing that consumers were knew about these products that they were selling. So they resisted strongly. Even as, as I argue in the in the book, they welcomed grades at other stages of the production process. So individual tomatoes on, in the field were often graded. Um, when they were stored, cans were stored in the warehouse. Before they were shipped, they were often graded. But they didn't want consumers to have that same information that they had on the production end. Yeah, you say that food grades are, are markers of power. Yeah. And that there were grades in the, in, in the, in the production, in the, in the chain, but they were not at the consumer level. Because of the power of the industry. You also lay out this kind of inherent tension between grading and branding. Could you explain that for us? Yeah. So this is also a moment when brands are really emerging as more uh, more visible in the public eye. You know, you, ha- you have Campbell's Soup and Heinz and Hunt's Tomatoes and a lot of these big brands that we're still familiar with today. And they, you know, try to create associations as they do today in the consumer eye of you know, the name Can- Campbell's means quality. And so the the brand was sort of the, the company's ability to, to, to differentiate among different kinds of products. And if grades were instituted, which would cut across brands, then some of Campbell's might be grade B, whereas some of the store brand might be grade A. And then it would totally cut across and, and you know, debunk the, the, the idea, sometimes the myth, that the brand meant something beyond um, beyond a name. And as brands became more important, companies who already had brand recognition, understandably, did not want to, to have their brand power undermined by standard grades. Yes, I always find this period so fascinating in the history of, 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 of capitalism, because it's, it's a moment where things could have been very different. And, and the things we granted, I remember reading, I think it's, is it Stuart Chase, who is the founder of Consumer um, Reports, the bureau that produces it, there's something I remember reading an essay once about. And he talked about 
know, like maybe we, maybe there shouldn't be advertising because it's all this money that's getting wasted and being moved around. You know, everything would be cheaper if there were no advertising. And it's unthinkable to us now, but it wasn't that long ago where they're like had a whole different vision of how who could say such a thing. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't followed it much, but I know that like Canada's canning industry actually did em- embrace grades uh, at, at least at that time. I don't know what happened to it later, but you know, and so the can the industry the government was often saying like look look to our neighbors to the north they're already doing this all of these problems that you are saying might happen are not happening so it has to be about something else which indeed it, it was so. <laughs> well in, in your really terrific final two chapters which bring us from world war ii up until really 2016 i think it is um it's it's story after story of the canning industry's kind of chickens coming home to roost so there's all these strategies that really help the industry gain market share um, in the pre-war period. And so many of the solutions to these pre-war crises that they faced are now getting the industry into trouble. The the old solutions are now the problems. Um, So for instance, uh, what are the, you know, kind of supposed successes of canners and the broader food industry that, for instance, draw the, end up drawing the ire of people like um, Ralph Nader or Francis Morrow? Yeah. So I very much tie a kind of backlash against, in some circles, against canned food to the broader kind of countercultural movement against industrial intervention in so many parts of American lives by the 1960s and 70s. Um, And yeah, it's very much the same kind of methods that the canners had used to gain consumer confidence, to grow, to start to internalize a lot of their scientific research, now started to make food production feel very um, opaque, you know, that that consumers didn't really know where their food was coming from. They were expressing this kind of disconnect between food production and consumption that we still hear about today. Um, That was very much the result of some of the successes of the industry and that they were able to um, grow successful enough. They didn't need to kind of show off what they were doing. Um, Obviously, there was also a lot of, you know, agricultural uh, innovation, both the kinds of things I mentioned earlier with breeding, but also the introduction of other um, petrochemical um, ingredients like pesticides and fertilizers after World War II that had started to create real environmental um, negative environmental effects from agriculture, which included canning agriculture um, that that consumers were pushing back against as part of the environmental movement. Um, and just the kind of technological improvement that the food processing industry had relied on now started to sort of stand in for a kind of lack of trust, you know, that earlier science and technology had been these amazing boons. And now in a kind of 1960s, 70s, you know, concerns about government and growth of government and other um, big processes, there begins, the, the food industry gets kind of caught up in a lot of that kind of countercultural rejection. Yeah, <laughs> I laughed out loud at one moment when I think it's an industry rep who is trying to defend industry from some of these criticisms about industrial food saying like, well, we, <laughs> Rachel Carson didn't mention us in Silent Spring, so we must be, everything must right. be okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. And that's a funny moment because they're saying, you know, at first they try to say like, we're doing a good job. You can blame other industries, but you can't blame us. Uh, that's what you kind of in the early, late 50s, early 60s. Um, yeah, we're doing fine with pesticides. You know, yeah, Rachel Carson doesn't mention us. But then as it's clear that their rejection of that is does not leave them <laughs> keep them from being implicated. They start responding much more angrily at at these consumer advocates and definitely do not have positive impressions of what these consumer advocates are doing. (laughs) How does BPA, which I think lots of people are aware of now, how does BPA and and, and the canning response to the the worries around it um, fit into the same narrative of yesterday's solutions or today's problems? 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it's um, my last chapter is all about sort of BPA or bisphenol A, which is a chemical um, that's used in widely in plastics and also on the linings of cans. Um, It's an endocrine disruptor that mimics hormones in the body and can create a lot of negative effects, including cancers, obesity, diabetes, others. Um, And that was well known for a long time is something you point out, right? That was... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of come to public attention only in the last 10 years or so. But certainly, um, since the 60s and 70s, there's been discussions of this and both within within the scientific industry in scientific space, but also from um, those who are sort of raising concerns. Um, But BPA first starts being put into these can linings, yeah, explicitly to fix an earlier problem, which was that before there was some barrier between the metal um, of the can and the food inside, there were concerns about that metal leaching into um, into the into the can into the food itself. Uh, in my first chapter, I talk about the concerns over what are called salts of tin, which is where the tin of the can would react with um, different. Um, f- elements in the food to create these kind of salts that they found unpleasant or would change the taste of the food to something metallic. So with the discovery of plastics and BPA, there was this, you know, as with so many aspects of plastic, this sense of it as a miracle material that if we lined the inside of the metal cans with this plastic, it would prevent the seepage of that metal into the food. But of course, now you have this new problem that emerges, which is that the the chemicals in the plastic itself is, um, create other problems that had been unforeseen and different kinds of problems. And in fact, that's one of the things that has been so frustrating about um, BPA to many um, scientists and those who sort of study toxicology is that, um, you know, it used to be the thought that the dose makes the poison in that anything can be um, toxic at high enough levels and at low enough levels, anything can be safe is the thought. And that held true for a lot of chemicals. Um, But uh, these endocrine disruptors are um, n- don't really um, don't really hold to that principle because even at really minute levels, depending on what stage of development they are introduced to an organism, they can have really devastating effects. And so that kind of uh, mantra of toxicology had to be rethought in light of BPA. Yeah, and, and something you talk about in both of these chapters that really figures um, prominently into the BPA story is. Um, essentially what I guess economists call regulatory capture, right? That, that the people in the federal government that are regulating these industries are also coming in and out. It's a rotating door coming between industry um, and, and regulators. And, uh, and that, that matters. And, and that the studies that are, that are I, I, I thought about this in terms of, I saw my Facebook feed last week or so, an NPR story, the headline was BPA safe. You know, it's, it's actually okay now, everyone is fine. And I was excited because my toddler likes this sparkling water in his cans. The doctor said, we can't drink it anymore. Anyway, I was very relieved. And then I read your book and then I go back in and it's, it's, it's reciting studies that are, that are playing up this, this GLP, this good laboratory practices. Um, can you say what that is and how that matters into these, into these studies? Yeah. So, um, as I understand it, there's a lot of ways that the FDA, um, regulates, you know, anything that's a food product or food, um, anything that touches food, basically. And they have set up um, a couple of different ideas of what counts, which studies they'll accept and which ones they don't. And so the ones that they say that they uh, will accept are ones that hold to good laboratory practices as they're defined. But a lot of critics of this uh, method suggest that a lot of these so-called good laboratory practices are ones that very much favor large-scale industrial um, studies over sort of more... um, 
impartial, smaller scale studies because of things like the number of um, test animals that they require, which seems, you know, beyond actual scientific need, um, but would obviously um, favor studies that could use really large numbers of test rats, for example, or other things where they're discounting, you know, within academic sciences, peer review has, you know, has always uh, signaled that anything that passes peer review into a major journal, those are different, you know, good laboratory practices, even if they're not GLP, but just the fact that they make it through peer review means that they, they hold up, they're held up to a kind of academic standard. But the federal government is saying, no, we're going to reject that standard just because something has gone under, uh, undergone peer review um, does not mean that it, you know, has the same standards that we hold it to. And a lot of um, critics believe that those FDA standards mean that the, you know, that the science on which these government decisions are based are not always the ones that actually favor public health over um, in- industry interests. Yeah, yeah. We saw the same thing, I think, just, just the other day when Secretary Pruitt at the EPA said, we're only going to use kind of transparent studies, um, which allowed the EPA to ignore studies that um, anonymize people's health data because you have to because of HEPA and all that. And so we can kind of throw away all these studies about human health because they, they can't fall into this transparent, you know, and that kind of thing. So. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think the unfortunate thing is that consumers, it's hard for anyone who's not an expert in this field to understand the nuances of these different things. And so when you hear someone who's a leader saying, uh, you know, we're going to use transparency, then you say, okay, yes, I trust what they produce. And as with the studies on BPA, I mean, it's it's hard to know. Yes, some studies and some reports say it's safe. Well, who am I to know whether that one's one I should pay attention to or this other report from another group who I don't know if I trust them either. And, you know, I think that question of trust and expertise is really the ultimate question. It's something I talk a lot about in my book in terms of who to trust, whether canned food was safe, but it obviously extends to much broader topics as we try to navigate an increasingly complex scientific and technological landscape in, in all our yeah, no interactions. Question. And that, that puts us perfectly at the end of your book where you share with us that you are, surprise, an, an advocate for reforming the American food system um, and that you've you've adopted many of the practices that many food activists urge that we all do from buying organic, eating local, growing our own food, etc. Um, but you also say that this, this research odyssey you've been on into the belly of the beast of American industrial food um, has transformed your thinking about what just an effective reform should look like. Um, so could you share with us a bit about your new perspective? Yeah, well, you know, it's been a long journey through the writing of this book and also just my own personal life in that, yeah, I mean, uh, from a very personal perspective, for whatever reason, I'm very compelled by sort of small acts of, you know, sacrifice. I, you know, get a lot of pleasure in riding my bike instead of driving because that few gallons of gas feels so critical to me. And, you know, those kinds of things, even as I recognize that it's a teeny tiny drop in the bucket relative to the large scale um, consumption of, of, you know, oil and all of in industrial sector. And I know that we're change really happens is at, a, is at a larger level, but the personal stuff, it matters to me. And so I don't want to suggest that we should all stop thinking about our personal choices, but at the same time, it's very clear that, um, you know, what we're taking in is very much shaped by the kind of system that we're all a part of. And so in one of the studies that I cite that is most influential, I think, in my thoughts on this is a study out of the University of Washington a few years ago, where they were trying to compare um, 
a group of uh, control consumers who were just sort of eating a national standard American diet, including canned food and others, with a group of people who were eating only local, non-packaged, you know, non-canned food um, diet, and then measuring the amount of these different endocrine disruptors and phthalates in their blood system. And what they found very shockingly, was actually the control group had lower rates than the um, than the group who was eating this local protected diet, um, especially of one other phthalate, not BPA, but another um, DEHP, I believe. Um, and, you know, this was not what they expected to find. Um, and then they still don't exactly know why, but one of the speculations was that the um, they were getting all their milk from a local dairy that was operating in, you know, very organic and ethical practices. Um, but that the plastic tubing that was funneling this warm milk from the cow's udder into the glass bottles that w- were then brought to the home, that perhaps there were high, high rates of leachable, you know, plastic material in that tubing. <laughs> and so this, this, you know, this thing that no one could really think of, you could try to eat as cleanly and perfectly as possible. And yet you're limited by these systems. And, you know, the FDA has approved certain kinds of plastic tubing to use for funneling milk. And so there's a way in which no matter how hard we try, and no matter how much we cut this or that out, or you don't let your toddler drink from that sparkling water, you know, there there are so many products in our modern life that we encounter that we as consumers really can't um, control. And so to me, that ultimately suggests that there is a real strong need for a regulatory process that tries as hard as it can to not be, you know, uh, affected by industry pressures and instead to really think about which products we allow into our markets, places, and which ones we don't, and when convenience isn't worth the potential sacrifices and when we should operate on a precautionary principle that keeps us from um, entering into these kinds of uh, dangerous places. Well, it's really just a wonderful book. Really wonderful. I hope it finds lots of readers, and I hope I hope you also take get a chance to take like a victory lap now. Um, and uh, but when the dust settles a bit, um, what's on your plate? What's what's going on right now? Yeah. So um, the next thing I'm working on right now that I'm pretty excited about is um, I'm co-editing a collection of essays about the making of the modern food system, especially environmental stories about the making of the modern food system. Um, I'm co-editing it with a couple of other great environmental historians. And the thing that's really exciting about it is, um, besides the fact that we have a really great team of 14 contributors from different um different places on different topics is that we're explicitly sort of conceiving of it as a collection of essays rather than an edited volume. That is to say, we're really focusing on writing and on narrative strengths in this in this um, set of essays. We're really trying to think about how do we conceive of ourselves as more like creative nonfiction writers? How do we transform the stories that we tell into really readable, accessible, beautiful, maybe even um, prose? And we're actually even hiring a writing coach, someone who's a real nonfiction writer to come in and work with us on, yeah, on, um, you know, revising our drafts and trying to think more about character development and setting the scene and all of these things that I think a lot of historians sort of maybe in name care about, but when it comes to actually writing, we don't often really put that much effort into it and think much more about argument and historiography and all of these other things. So we're trying to really, uh, you know, put our money where our mouth is and think about how to create a set of essays about something that matters 
in the field, but also is just a pleasure to read. So as someone who's always cared about writing, I'm really excited about the project and about the the process. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so excited to hear about that. And I'll certainly be looking for it like lots of people will in, in, the, in the months and years to come. The working title is Acquired Tastes. Ooh, so. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Anna, Anna, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this book. Thank you, Brian. It was a real pleasure to, to talk about it with you. 